I don't know, I kind of like that DJ turntable sound effect. I was wondering if we could play that during the sermon the whole time. That would be an interesting mix. As you walk into the entryway of our, our church, you'll see four statements. And those statements really represent the mission of this church. Uh, who we are, our identity, but also what God has called us to do. Uh, we are a people who are devoted to worshiping God bringing people to faith, conforming to the image of Jesus, and caring for others in need. And this morning, we want to hone in on that third statement, conforming to the image of Jesus. What does that mean? What does that look like in our everyday lives? Well, one of the places to go is, well, really the words that we prayed together earlier, the Lord's Prayer. Uh, the prayer that Jesus gave his disciples as a model prayer there in the Sermon on the Mount. I believe that what Jesus provides is not only a gift to the disciples, but a gift to the church. We get a window into the prayer life of Jesus. And he also helps us set our priorities within this prayer with these six petitions. But it's that fifth petition that really serves as a highlight of the prayer. And I suspect it was a highlight because it's the one line of the Lord's Prayer where Jesus offers commentary. It's almost as if Jesus expected there to be objections to this call for us to ask God for forgiveness of our trespasses, literally debts, as we forgive our debtors. So just following that prayer in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Forgiveness is really at the heart of what it means to be conformed to the image of Jesus. But how can you practice forgiveness if there's no one to forgive? How can you practice forgiveness if you have no enemy? So over the last several weeks, we've worked through this series called Can't Live Without Them. It's a series about relationships. It's a series really about the church. God has blessed us in the church with these relationships to help us become the people that God has called us to be. And we have two more relationships to cover, one today and one next week. But here's a list of names that we've worked through thus far. Nathan, the truth teller. Jonathan, the true friend. Mordecai, the challenger. Timothy, the protege. Barnabas, the encourager. Paul, the mentor. Deborah, the calming presence. Zacchaeus, the reject. Lydia, the VIP. And then the last one, Jerusalem, a home. Everyone needs a home. And I wonder, as we've worked through these, if you've been able to identify certain people in your lives who served in these different roles, these different capacities. Well, today we're going to look at a relationship that might be a little surprising, because as painful as the relationship may be, it is truly one that we cannot live without if we are to be the people God has called us to be, and that is the relationship of an enemy, a nemesis. A thorn in the flesh. 
So can you identify your enemy this morning? Do you have one? Well, as a way into this topic, I thought we would work from Matthew chapter 2. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. We worked through this in our Bible classes. I'm not going to spend a ton of time there. I'm going to use this as a launching point. But I do want to reread this story of Herod and the birth narrative of Jesus. So hear the word of God from Matthew chapter 2 beginning in verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, or magi, from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and and we've come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Verse 13, Now when they had departed, behold, An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. May God bless the reading of his word. In April of 1994, one of the most horrific events in modern history took place in the African country of Rwanda. The death of a president in a plane crash set off a genocide of nightmarish proportions. Militias of the Hutu tribe began to hunt down and kill anyone who was of the Tutsi tribe or those friendly to the Tutsis. It's estimated that over 600,000 people were slaughtered in 100 days. But within the nightmare of that genocide, there were great stories of courage and faith. And one of these stories belonged to a, a young woman who was in college at the time, a woman named Immaculate. She was home from break from her school term when the genocide started, and her father told her to flee, flee to a neighbor's house. 
And so she went. She and her family were Tutsis. But her neighbor was a Hutu man, but was a friend. And he agreed to hide her. The only place to hide, though, was a three-by-four-foot bathroom down the hall. And so she hid there, only to be joined by five other women within the next couple of days. And they hid in that three-by-four-foot bathroom for 91 days. Not even her neighbor's family knew that they were there. He told them, don't go into that bathroom. It's locked. I lost the key. But they were confined there. It's an incredible story. We really don't have enough time to go into all the details of what took place there. But I do want to highlight two miracles. One that took place I'm going to talk about now. Uh, The other I'll mention at the end of the sermon. The first miracle for Immaculate and the women in that 3 by 4 bathroom came at the moment when a search-and-kill militia came to the house. Uh, These militias were going house to house and killing Tutsis, or as they put it, killing the cockroaches. Immaculate had a nominal faith in God, but there in that small room, she constantly prayed to the Lord. And when she heard the voices of that militia, that they had come into the house and they were interacting with the neighbor, she prayed that the door would not open, that the bathroom door would remain shut. It wasn't a very good hiding place, and the militia were, the men of the militia were very thorough. They would go room to room. Some would go up into the attic with flashlights looking for any person of the Tutsi tribe. There was no corner unchecked in the house. And then the men walked up to the bathroom door with six women on the other side of this door. And nothing happened. Immaculate's neighbor would tell her later that one of the men walked up to the door and he started to reach for the knob. And then he turned around For some reason, whatever reason, a providential reason, he spoke to the neighbor and said, it's clear, we trust you, you're one of us. And he ordered the men to go to the next house. She was safe. Amen indeed. But her story was actually just beginning. When the 100 days of the genocide ended and they were able to leave that bathroom, she was 65 pounds, which was 50 pounds lighter than when she had entered into that place of hiding. And then she found out that the Hutus had killed her mother, her father, her grandparents, all but one brother, friends, and many neighbors. Immaculate had a road of much anguish ahead of her along with the entire nation of Rwanda. This horrendous episode in Rwanda is a story that has been played over and over again since the beginning of time, certainly since Genesis chapter 3, when sin began to dominate the world. When we read Scripture, we see the Hutus and the Tutsis all over the place. They are in the stories of Cain and Abel, 
and the flood and the tribalism of the book of Genesis, the enslavement and mistreatment of the Hebrew people by the Egyptians in the book of Exodus, the entire book of Judges, and into the stories of the wicked kings of Israel and even Judah. It is the story of fallenness, a fallen world. It's the story of us and them. It is a sin story of greed and power, hatred, envy. It's the story of a broken world and broken people who live as enemies. This is the world in which Jesus entered. This is the world where he experienced that he experienced even from his birth, even at his most vulnerable state, a baby, he was surrounded by enemies. All the ingredients are there in Matthew chapter 2 of a miniature Rwanda, a madman, a puppet king put into power by the Romans, a man who was thirsty for power and clung to power with everything that he had, a man who hears the news of of the birth of a rival king from the Magi from the east who saw his star. And then in verse 3 we see that there is fear mixed into the picture. Herod and all the people of Jerusalem were troubled. Some of your translations say frightened. And where there is fear, mixed with pride, mixed with envy, mixed with a thirst for power, well, these are the ingredients for a massacre. A massacre that the family of Jesus barely escaped thanks to God's intervention. But Jesus' enemy list grew larger as he entered into his ministry, as he grew into adulthood. Israel itself became hostile to the Messiah, especially the leaders, the aristocracy, the gatekeepers of the law of Moses. But eventually, even the crowds turned against him. Even his inner circle turned against him. One betrayed his location for 30 pieces of silver. Ten went into hiding. One, his chief lieutenant, denied that he even knew Jesus in the presence of many witnesses. Jesus was indeed despised and rejected to the point where he was handed over to Israel's enemies, the Romans who would torture him on the cruelest device, the cross of shame. Yes, Jesus entered into and he exited his life Surrounded by enemies. But I wonder this morning, can you identify an enemy? Who's your enemy? Here in Austin, we don't live in a situation where we're being hunted down by those who are trying to kill us and we're having to hide in a three by four foot bathroom. Although those situations are happening all over the world to our brothers and sisters, may God have mercy on them. The world is not worthy of them. I think it can be difficult, especially this time of the year, with everything so festive, with what we're about to experience tonight at 6 o'clock and the joy and the celebration. I think it's difficult for us, and I know it's difficult for me to get my mind around the events of Rwanda and the Hutus and the Tutsis and Immaculate's story and in many ways it's hard for me to get my mind around Matthew chapter 2 and the infanticide that was about to happen that we didn't quite read about. 
But I would imagine that many of us, most of us, have someone who's a thorn in the flesh. We have someone who serves as an antagonist, whether it be a co-worker or a neighbor, or maybe someone in our own family. Maybe it's a personality thing. Maybe it's a wrong that happened in the past. Maybe it's a current situation where you find yourself on the wrong end of some type of injustice. And when you think about this person, there is anger, there is bitterness, there is resentment. Do you have an enemy? Do you have a Herod? Now, I'm not suggesting that you go and look for a Herod or try to manufacture having some kind of enemy. But I would venture to say that having an enemy is a gift in the kingdom of God. It's a gift that we really can't be without if we are going to be the kinds of people that God has called us to be. Because it's only with an enemy, it's only with someone who has wronged you, that you can truly be conformed to the image of Jesus, the one who laid his life down for his enemies. The one who laid his life down for you and for me. The one who became what we are so that we might become what he is. Paul Paul has this incredible summary of the gospel in his magnum opus, his letter to the Romans in Romans chapter 5 verses 6 through 11 where he says this in the context of two groups of enemies. Two groups of people who were at odds, Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. The Hutus and the Tutsis, if you will. Jews and Gentiles. People who had been separated and at odds with one another for centuries, and all of a sudden they're under the same roof. They belong to the same family. They're gathered at the same table, breaking bread with one another. This is what Paul says as he levels the playing field for the Jews and the Gentiles. Romans chapter 5, verse 6 and following. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, I'll read that one more time. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Through Jesus, through his life and his death and his resurrection, we have received reconciliation with God, which has made it possible for us to experience reconciliation with each other. It's the cross. It's the cross that not only saves us, but it is the cross that shapes us. 
It's the cross that captures the essence of the kingdom of God that has been ushered into this world in a world of Jews and Gentiles, north and south, east and west, Republican and Democrat, black and white, in a world of Hutus and Tutsis, in a world of warring tribes and polarization, in a world of enemies. God, through Christ, has brought something new into this world. A new humanity. A new way to live. A way of peace. A way that is shaped by the cross. A way of life that really isn't possible except by the grace of God and has been mentioned the Spirit among us this morning. Immaculate found this out as she tried to make sense of what had just happened to her and the trauma of hiding out for 91 days in a tiny room with five other women and losing all of her family members to genocide. Immaculate turned to faith, although it didn't happen overnight. She knew that God had rescued her. She knew that God was real. There's no way that the men would have turned away from that bathroom, wall, that bathroom door without some type of intervention. She believed in God, and yet she was not ready to obey at the moment. She read the book of Matthew. She started to work her way through. She came to the Sermon on the Mount in that line that said that we are to love our enemies. If you just love your friends, you're no different from the pagans. But you're to love your enemies and to bless them. You're to pray for them. And Immaculate came to that verse and she shut the Bible and she made up her mind that she was going to skip that part every time she read the Gospel of Matthew. Immaculate said the Lord's Prayer daily, except for one line. That fifth petition... Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. She refused to say it to quote her. She skipped it because she didn't want to lie to God. And she could not forgive what had happened to her family by the Hutus. But over time, as she read, as she prayed... As she wrestled with and internalized the story of Jesus and especially the story of the cross, her heart softened. She changed. She realized that her feelings toward the Hutus was keeping her in a perpetual prison and she needed release. And she got to a point where she could finally pray the entire Lord's Prayer, including that fifth petition. She got to a point where she could forgive and pray and even love her enemies. Four years after the genocide, she arranged to go to a prison where there were many Hutu militia men. They were in custody for crimes that they had committed during the genocide. And she was escorted by one of the prison guards and was introduced to the leader of the gang who had murdered her family and also looted her home. The man had been a Hutu businessman. At one point, he was in a suit 
And now he was in prison rags. And the guards shouted at him and ordered him to confess to Immaculate what he had done to her family. And the prisoner, through sobs, through tears, began to recount the atrocities that he had committed against Immaculate. But Immaculate had been transformed by the gospel. She cried, but then she reached out her hand and she touched the hand of this prisoner and she said something to him that was not of this world. Three words, I forgive you. A second miracle, I forgive you. Do you have an enemy? Do you have a Herod? It may not seem pleasant at the time, but it is a gift. When it comes to being conformed to the image of Christ, having an enemy is a relationship that we really can't be without. Because for every enemy that we have, we also have the opportunity for the gospel to take flesh through us through the church, through the people of God. It is the hardest command of Jesus to love our enemies because it is not of this world. And yet this is why Jesus came, to usher in the kingdom of God, the kingdom that is coming in its fullness one day, but as we know, the kingdom that is already broken into this world through our Lord Jesus Christ and His Spirit among us. We have an invitation this morning to take hold of that story, that good news that we celebrate, not just this year, but every Lord's Day and every day of the week. We recognize that we are the product of the grace and the love of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you'd like to respond to that good news, to the gospel, we invite you to come as we stand and sing this song together. <laughs>